Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. I'm your host, Graham Colbertson. This is another episode in the Radicalism in the English Revolution series. My guest today is Ariel Hesseon. You uh, heard me talk with him in the introductory episode of the series, and now we are doing an episode on Gerard Winstanley and the Diggers. So here you go. Gerard Winstanley, a 17th century Tolstoy, or so they say. Let's see what Ariel thinks. Shall we move on to the new levelers or true levelers or leaders? Yes, yes, we we absolutely should. And uh, I've been thinking about this a bit. And here's how I would like to start before we get to the um, the levelers and what they did in the same way that I started with my, you know, an anachronistic French revolution. I wanted I told you that um, when Stanley seems to me to be the inventor of anarchist communism, although as far as I know, Kropotkin hadn't read him. And I want to run through what I take to be the sort of key ideas from Kropotkin and you can just begin by saying if I'm if I'm on the right track at all and seeing these ideas in Win Stanley and then from there we can go into Win Stanley's life and everything so Kropotkin writes in Mutual Aid that society especially in, in the Middle Ages he's very fascinated with the Middle Ages is fairly communistic the village is run in a fairly communistic way everyone works together. You don't have massive um, class hierarchies, farming, you know, he's against enclosure, all this stuff. This is his vision of the Middle Ages. A lot of people think it's, you know, an ahistoric fantasy, but this is what he describes. And he says that this is a, a thing that people were not theorizing as anarcho-communism, of course, but this is the idea of how society should work. And he identifies the rise of what we would now call the Renaissance as a sort of like kingly attack on this thing that's these sort of free communities. I mean, he uses the word commune and he says the village commune and he says the commune and the village are sort of one and the same. And he says the thing that is bad is kingly hierarchy that is enforced by a number of things, particularly the soldiers, of course, prisons, lawyers, and the entire bureaucratic administrative state. And this bureaucratic administrative state is imposed upon these sort of free communistic farmers and pretty much everything that's bad in the world comes from this imposure of the bureaucratic administrative state on these free farming communes. And if I've given a fair summary of Kropotkin to you, which I I promise I've read a lot of Kropotkin and I'm doing my best, it seems to me this is pretty close, except that I've left Jesus out of it, to what Win Stanley argued. So first, with my ahistorical anachronistic thing, how, how am I doing? I would say I can't comment on your summary of Kropotkin. Kropotkin, is that pronounced? I mean, I can't pronounce. uh, Some people try and get a little more uh, 
uh, Russian and say Kropotkin, but I, I mean, I can't do that. So say help, say whatever you want. Okay, Kropotkin, Kropotkin. No, no, <laughs> edit that for yes, that, please. We'll do. <laughs> Kropotkin. Um, I think that's good, Graham. I mean, I, I think that's ex- with the summary that you've given me. I see a lot of Winstanley in that, with the crucial dimension as you mentioned that needs to be incorporated, which is the religion. Mm-hmm. And and that points to to, seven, to the first point we really need to to think about, which is how do we think about the diggers? How do we study them? What are the main lines of approach? Because we have to remember that in their own day, they, they, they were insignificant. Mm-hmm. They were insignificant. They were defeated. Memory of them completely disappeared. And then when they were rediscovered and in a sense revalorized and remembered and commemorated, it was largely from the late 19th century onwards by Edward Bernstein, the German journalist, uh, communist, and then ex, and then to the communist heresiarch, and the fashioning of the diggers, the way that they were remembered in the late 19th and 20th century, has a great deal of resonance with what you've just described. So, for example, and this is in Winstanley. Winstanley's main enemies are the king, the clergy, the lawyers, and the yeah. law. They are the fundamental props of not the state's power, but the beast from the apocalypse. But it's this, but conceptually, you can see a very similar thing. So, in your summary, I think you've missed out the clergy, but the rest is the same. Yes, uh, Kropotkin doesn't like the clergy, but I don't think he emphasizes them in the same way that Winstanley does. Okay, but with that missing that element aside, it's very similar. Secondly, this idea of communism. So there's a big debate amongst historians about anachronism. Can we can we talk about the past using anachronism? Yes or no. So. On the plus side, anachronism helps people who don't spend their entire lifetime studying it get a handle on what's going on. So if we start talking about communists in the medieval period or the 17th century or the diggers, then people who have an idea about communism go, okay, I get what you're talking about. But at the same time, it's an approximation which isn't exactly accurate for what happened at the time. So if we talk, start talking about communism, what we're talking about is a theory developed by Karl Marx and others. And what the diggers are, are not communists. They are believers in community of goods and community. So it looks very similar, but the principles that underpin it are different. So the diggers community, in my view, is based upon the New Testament and particularly the Acts of the Apostles where there is the influence and the inspiration to have all things in common. And they are a spiritual community who share everything because they have the same spiritual ideas. 
but it has a practical physical manifestation in the way that they work the land but the the physical manifestation follows from the spiritual if they're not united spiritually then they're not a community so it could look like communism and they advocate for the abolition of money they advocate for having all things in common for the earth as a common treasury but the language is biblical and the inspiration is biblical but you can see how they are placed within a tradition that one could see as being communist in the same way that they themselves are in my view, come from a 16th century radical reformation idea, from the Anabaptists. So these are people who deny the validity of infant baptism, who follow adult baptism, particularly dominant in German-speaking areas of what is now Switzerland, parts of Germany, and parts of the Netherlands. And they themselves have a huge range of different ideas, but on this, they have a lot of commonality in this sense of community and that's where i think some of the key digger ideas are coming from and i can reinforce that and in fact i've argued it at great length i won't get into the theology so how, how does that so it sounds as though there's a there's a fair amount of similarity and hence i can well appreciate your your interest in Propotkin. And yeah so the, i mean to me it does sound very similar and when you know emma goldman who is influenced by Kropotkin more than anyone else she lays out very clearly three three enemies of the anarchist communion uh community and they are organized religion organized government in in which she puts you know of course the state police military everything and then organized commerce business corporations and it seems to me if we use those three categories from goldman again when stanley objects to all all three of them very very strongly yeah i would say if this was a dating site we have a very close match <laughs> yes i want to mention briefly you know kropotkin has a great uh, contemporary, the no, uh, novelist Leo Tolstoy, and they sort of agree, they agree on almost everything except for a whether violence is justified in bringing about the revolution, and and b whether uh, Jesus is is the answer. So I'm guessing if I was a Tolstoyan rather than a Kropotkinian, we would have an even closer dating match. And for the Tolstoy fans out there, and believe me, they are out there. I, I, when when I hear when Stanley talk about like I mean Tolstoy's line is the kingdom of God is within you, and when Stanley I don't he doesn't write that exact phrase but he writes things like the kingdom of heaven is in your heart or something like that like maybe just a matter of Russian translation. I can push that further and say that very late nineteenth early twentieth century readers of Win Stanley basically wondered whether he was a seventeenth century Tolstoy. Yeah, it's, it's it's amazing. It's amazing um, what's happening. All right, so we've we've done that work now, and now we can take a step back, and you can return us to the 17th century. Um, I guess you know people have just heard about the levelers who were not levelers. They were you know they wanted political leveling, but they did not want propertarian leveling and uh can you just tell us a bit about how this this community that yes is is small and would be totally irrelevant except for how 
much these ideas resonated in the 19th and 20th century. In other words, it's no surprise that we're finding similarities between these ideas and the 19th century ideas, because precisely as you told us, that's when people became interested in this. 19th century communists said, hey, wait a second, here we've got this close match. So let's let's do some history. Where did these people come from? Sure. So let's go back a step before I, I talk about new levelers, true levelers, and diggers, and get you get everybody listening to think about the climate. Let's think of again as something topical. Okay. The climate is always in the news today. The climate was rather important in the 17th century. In the 17th century, they lived through what we now call, since the 1930s, a little ice age. That meant that temperatures, particularly in Northern Europe, were significantly colder than they are now, on average one and a half, two degrees centigrade. And that had major consequences. The River Thames was a slightly different river with a London bridge spanning it in slightly different ways, but it would freeze over periodically during the 17th century, at least half a dozen times, the entire River Thames would freeze over. Other rivers would freeze over. You'd have trees would explode as the sap contracted. What's the relevance of this? The relevance is this is a subsistence economy. With terrible winters, you have large-scale famine. With heavy rain, you have famine. You need the right weather conditions to grow the crops. And one of the consequences of civil war and the Little Ice Age or the Thirty Years' War in Germany is scapegoating for the failure of crops. And you see that played out in accusations of witchcraft in continental Europe, and you see it played out in, in England, particularly in East Anglia, uh, the famous witchfinder general Matthew Hopkins, for example. In England, you can't understand the diggers until you understand that these people are desperate and that they're starving. And they're desperate and they're starving because of the climate and the massive, hard spread, the massive har harvest failure causes widespread famine, which is extremely well documented in the print media of the day and the news of the day. In all the northern counties, in Westmoreland, for example, we've got accounts of pure desperation. We have accounts of desperation indeed from Lancashire in the northwest of England. And that's significant because that's the county that Winstanley comes from. Significantly as well from Wigan, which is the place he was born, not too far from uh, Manchester. Trade is completely destroyed, and according to one printed account, people are reduced to eating dead birds. Mm. This is the level of, of deprivation we're talking about. Begging, so the poor survived by stealing food, fuel for their fires, and by charitable bequests. Now, interestingly enough, the royalists, the supporters of Charles I, say, well, this is only to be expected. You've shed the blood of the king, who is like a royal martyr, and this is God's divine punishment on the land for killing the king. And the parliamentarians say, well, this is only to be expected because the royalists killed the innocent saints, who are the descendants of Abel the righteous, who was killed by the brother Cain, and this is God's just punishment on the land for shedding innocent blood. So both sides interpret it as divine providence and vengeance for the shedding of innocent blood. 
but what it means is that the diggers emerge within this picture. They're not just emerging in a vacuum. And they they settle in the parish that they're active in before they begin to dig. So the parish that they, they begin to dig is in St. George's Hill, is the name of the place, and the parish is Walton-upon-Thames in Surrey. And in one of those ironies of history, the hill is now home to a golf course and a gated community and the second <laughs> big settlement is where Chelsea Football Club have their training ground in Cobham so it's it's the richest county per capita in England and in one of the most exclusive areas in England with some of the most expensive properties is where the diggers began you're shaking your head in disbelief <laughs> I'm very upset <laughs> Yes, uh, but there is a memorial to, to Winstanley in Cobham Church. I know because I was there for the unveiling of it and contributed towards it. Uh, so, so there are some traces and there are some street names. So there is a little bit of a relic to it. Now, when did this begin? So there are two leaders to the diggers. One is called William Everard and one is called Gerard Winstanley. What they both have in common is that they were both apprentices in the same London company, one of the largest London companies, which is the Merchant Tailors Company. So immediately we have to ask the question is, did they know themselves? Did they know each other as adolescents, as teenagers? Maybe, but probably not, given how large the company was. But you never know. One of the things that we do know or have been able to work out is that a lot of people who crop up in the 1640s and the 1650s tended to know each other in the 1630s in these underground Puritan communities, that these networks were already long established. Otherwise, it, we can't explain, whether it be the levelers or the diggers, how a movement or a community emerges so quickly, unless there are these pre-existing social bonds, these networks, partly family, partly occupation, partly religion, partly a combination of all of them. Everard, well, he'd been probably seems to a, a spy during the Civil War, captured by the Royalists, kicked out of the army. Um, some people were more, I don't know if Rachel said, but some people were more radical than the Levellers. And they include Everard, who wanted to assassinate Charles I. I think I promised her that I would just talk to you about the people who were more radical than the levelers. So you're, 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 you've nailed it. Okay, perfect. So yeah, he, he was implicated in the plot to assassinate Charles I and kicked out of the army. He's also a blasphemer. He's a believer in adult baptism, which helps reinforce one of those arguments that I want to make that the, the roots of the diggers come in this radical Anabaptism from the 16th century. Um, and he goes further than the Anabaptists because eventually he says that we don't even need baptism by water, just baptism by fire, spiritual fire rather than a literal fire. He denies that the Bible is real or that the scriptures are true. He says there's no point in prayer. And he, we know in a court record that he interrupts a minister when he's preaching in the local church next door. In fact, no, in the parish of Walton on Thames where the diggers will be active a few months later. And he sort of says, get down, thou son of perdition, which is a biblical thing. So a lot of contemporaries think he's quite crazy. And he will end up in um, not quite the uh, the Gotham 
hospital for the mentally insane, but, but the 17th century equivalent of Bridewell and manacled for his own protection, supposedly. Uh, Winstanley, as I say, is from northwest of England from the Diggers, uh, so from Wigan. And what we know about him is that he learns his trade in London, like Everard. Everard's probably from Reading, I should have added. And that he's a very bad businessman. His business is completely destroyed by the war, uh, mostly because, again, in this time of economic hardship, it's utterly dependent upon credit, as most businesses are. And when war breaks out, all the credit lines fracture and he's left with masses of debt and no ability to pay it. And we have lots of legal cases that, that show that. Some people have suggested that he's reduced to bankruptcy and that that's one of the motives for him to found the diggers that if he'd become a successful businessman he would never have found the diggers because he would never have been desperate there's also an argument as to what type of radical religion he was in favor of before he founded the diggers and the old school view which i disagree with is that he was in favor of free will and what's called arminianism which is um an adaptation of the Dutch theologian Jacobus Arminus, but it's against the idea of predestination of the Calvinists. I actually disagree and think that he's adopting a radical Baptist viewpoint where most people can be saved. So it's even on more extreme than Calvinist rather than, than Arminian. And I've, I've argued this at length. But again, it reinforces this idea that the, the roots of the diggers come from this radical Baptist idea than from anything else. He goes and lives in Cobham in Surrey, which is the next door parish to where the diggers will begin. And he pastures his cattle, he grazes them, and he uses fuel, he uses peat from the wasteland for which he's prosecuted. Because if you're the inhabitant of a parish, you have customary rights. You can take the fuel to heat yourself, to manure for your animals, but he's an inhabitant rather than a parishioner. He's, he's not native. So, in April 1649, the diggers are founded. If you read the history books, they will all tell you it's the 1st of April 1649. I had a long debate with another authority on the diggers, the late John Gurney, and we agreed that we don't know when exactly the diggers were founded. It's either <laughs> Sunday the 1st of April or Sunday the 8th of April. I won't get into the evidence for, for which it is. But the important point that most people don't pick up is that it's a Sunday. And what the diggers do, as their name suggests, is they dig the ground. And they dig the ground on a Sunday, which means they're Sabbath breakers. Mm. So they begin the diggers through an act of Sabbath breaking, which is an important religious... You can be fined for Sabbath breaking. And it's also a radical Anabaptist idea at this point, that the Sabbath no longer is in space, which again reinforces that idea. So the question becomes, they're digging on the Sabbath in Walton-upon-Thames in Surrey. What is it that they're doing? Well, Everard and Winstanley have both had visions telling them that this is how to found their community. Now, earlier I talked about Winstanley and the peat, and that's a really important idea. Every parish in England has or had 
common ground. So this common ground was land that in addition to whatever you held, you could use to grow additional crops, either to eat in poor times of poor harvest or to sell for a minor profit. And they were your customary rights as a parishioner in that parish. You had a right to the common ground. Winstanley is not an inhabitant of Walton-upon-Thames, nor are most of the diggers, though several of them are from the neighbouring parish of Cobham. He says that that common ground is common for everybody, not just people from the parish. And so it rouses a lot of hostility from the locals who are saying, no, that's our common ground, not everybody's common ground. On top of that, you have a situation, we are in April 1649, so to contextualise for people listening, we've had our first civil war, 1642 to 1646, our second civil war of 1648, the execution of the king at the end of January 1649, and we're in an apocalyptic atmosphere where many people think the world will be about to end. Some people predict 1650, some people predict 1656. One of the consequences of the execution of the king, and here's another parallel for you with the French Revolution, is you have a victorious army that you need to pay. Mm-hmm. How are you going to pay them? You get all the land of the clergy and all the land of the monarchy, and you start redistributing it because you don't have the actual money to pay them, so you give them land instead. And they sell the royal art collection and all the rest of it. So you're in a climate where you've got a lot of royal forests, a lot of royal woods that are unoccupied because the people maintaining it have run away or their employer is being (laughs) defeated or in this case, or sometimes executed. So there's a lot of wasteland to cultivate and there are a lot of schemes in this era of Little Ice Age to try and let set the poor to work to be able to help themselves by cultivating this land so that they can feed themselves because you've got all this land that's going to waste. And Surrey has lots of royal lands as the neighbouring counties such as Berkshire, for example, the Royal Forest near Windsor. So what they're doing is radical, particularly their idea about common land, but it's not as radical as we might think in relation to what else is happening at that very moment. What's different is that there there is an ideology to it born out of necessity rather than purely just necessity. I'll pause there. Got it. Okay. I want to jump in at this point and say my, as listeners of this podcast know very well, I'm very convinced that anarchism is a conservative ideology especially as it is opposed to Marxism um, in that Marx seems to glory in the coming bourgeois world of machinery and industrialism and just hopes the workers will seize that Kropotkin and especially Morris, who is kind of an anarchist and kind of not seem to like the idea that there was an older Order. So rather than pushing forward through the bourgeois revolution into the new world, go, go back. Um, and it seems to me, based on my reading of Winstanley, when he's claiming, oh, the earth is a common treasury for all, he's making a conservative or backwards argument. He says, 
things were held more in common before the Normans. But he says it's not just the Normans. Things were held in common before kingdoms and things were held in common during the time of Jesus. And in fact, things were held in common in the Garden of Eden. So the argument is not we're creating this new vision. It's that we are going back to the old ways. And I wanted to see how how that sounded to you. I think you're absolutely spot on. Okay, keep um, going. <laughs> so one of the debates I talked about anachronism earlier is whether we can call this radical or radicalism. Forget the radicalism for now, but we can certainly call it radical in a number of ways. The original meaning of the word radical means to get back to the roots, hmm. to get to the essence <laughs> of the original. And when Stanley and the Diggers are truly radical, because everything about it, I've, I've actually discussed this in print, so I'm not just agreeing you, you for the sake of it, I can point you to where I've said this, is, is literally about a return. It's about a return to the Garden of Eden before the fall. It's a return of a state of nature before you had to work for cultivation prior to the fall. It's a return to the primitive Christianity of Jesus and the apostles, where they had community of all things, prior to the intervention of the papacy and the development of the Catholic Church. It's a return to a state, as you say, before the Norman yoke, during the supposed imagined freeborn Anglo-Saxons. It's a return prior to the imposition of terrible legal constraints, often in a foreign language that are onerously expensive, that subjugate the peasants. All of this is about the return. It's a radical return. And in that sense, they're not, they're not looking forward, they're looking backward. And the most important return is the one I've not yet mentioned. It's the return of Jesus. Yes. Jesus will return. He will come in the future, but he is, in fact, returning to take you back to the apocalypse. And the apocalypse is, is going to happen. And for Winstanley, is happening. It's already in process. And that apocalypse is happening because Christ has shown himself spiritually within each believer who is a digger. And that process then enables the land to regenerate and for the diggers to live in community and harmony. And that process will spread gradually throughout the kingdom. This is in the initial vision. The, the last works is a more pragmatic where there's a recognition that perhaps not everybody is going to accept it, but at least there'll be enough space for some of the communities and they can reach an accommodation and so you won't need buying and selling, you won't need trade, you won't need you won't need money, which is identified with the mark of the beast from Revelation of 666. Okay, I want to jump in now to, to talk about the theology a little bit. This is this is something that I again need your help with because I've got my own reading of it and I can't quite be sure. It does seem so if in in my work on 
when I recorded episodes on, you know, sort of primitive Christianity, what's happening in the Gospels and the social gospel, which also very much saw this as a return. One of the ways to think about that is the idea is where Christianity has gone awry is not just in the creation of uh, authority and, you know, popery and all of that stuff. But in fact, Christianity has gone awry in that they have taken the message of a man who said, do this right now here on earth. And they've turned it into a platonic metaphysical claim about another world. Um, and then they use claims about this other world to justify everything that that desert prophet said not to do. And then weirdly, heaven becomes, uh, I mean, this is sort of Marx's argument as well, but heaven becomes a reason, you know, not to do what we know we should do. And then the the social gospel argument is, in fact, Jesus told you to do all of these things and you're not doing them in the name of Jesus. As near as I can tell, when Stanley does not have this platonic bifurcated view of heaven, that it's somewhere beyond earth. Am I understanding him? He seems to think that heaven and earth are the same place if you follow the gospel correctly and bring about heaven. Like the the metaphysical element of it almost dissolves in my reading of Win Stanley. It's, it's for someone raised in a Calvinist tradition, like I was, it's, it's almost a precise inversion. Okay, so I brought up the quotation that came to mind, which, again, you're spot on. Um, For action is the life of all, and if thou dost not act, thou dost nothing. <laughs> that's Win Stanley. So that's the action. Heaven and hell are internalized. Yes. And he's not alone in that. If Jesus is within, then the devil can be within, depending upon. And if Jesus is within, then you have the kingdom of God within you. So the other heaven is a physical place. And that's a blasphemous idea. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a blasphemous idea that some of what Winstanley says falls foul of the various blasphemy legislation of 1648 and 1650, including the idea that everybody can be saved. You've come from a Calvinist background, so you know that that's contrary to Calvinism. Everybody can be saved. Um, although I think you sort of suggested that he does seem to think briefly that everyone is going to be saved. And then when there's setbacks to the levelers movement, he... He almost becomes a sort of papist in that he believes that the, those who are going to be saved get punished beforehand but for mm. their sins. But then he says, this is not purgatory, <laughs> is pretty much what he's saying. I want to go now to the there's there's plenty more to talk about with the ideas and hopefully we'll have time for some of them. But I think we need to go now to the end of the leveler community. And before that, I my understanding is because and um, because Cromwell and, and Fairfax and some of the other uh, Puritan leaders are relatively tolerant. 
initially the levelers are not opposed by the powers that be. Do I have that right? Okay, so there are multiple arguments about the levelers, and Rachel will have given you her take. Uh, we're at the point of whether you can talk about the levelers as a unified mass movement or whether there are an assorted collection of individuals who happen to share brief aims for a brief period of time. One line of thinking is the classic idea, which is promoted by Christopher Hill in The World Turned Upside Down, which is that the levelers are the victims of a revolution betrayed, that there's two simultaneous revolutions. There's a bourgeois, respectable revolution of the gentry and the landowners in general, Oliver Cromwell, Fairfax, Cromwell's son-in-law, Henry Ireton, the, grand, the army grandees, who used the more radical levelers and others to get power, but then betray them because they more want a more moderate settlement. So in which case the levellers are well and truly betrayed and Lilburn spends most of his adult life in prison. The level leader. Um, so so in, that, in that sense, maybe they're not as sympathetic as we might think. I mean, Richard Overton is questioned by the House of Lords. He's in prison. Thomas Prince is in prison. William Wallen may have been in prison, judging from some records that are a little bit obscure. So there's not much tolerance if the leadership are mostly in prison yeah. for them. But they do begin from a position where Cromwell and Lilburn are allies. But that's prior to the formation of the Levellers. And there's an argument that You've talked about the Putney debates. There's an argument that they're outmaneuvered at the Putney debates. But the major problem with the Putney debates is we only have two days of 14 in the debates. And we also don't know whether there are equally significant debates just a few months before and a few months after, but we don't have such detailed records of them. So we all talk about the Putney debates without knowing whether there were equally important debates, but we just don't have the record. Yeah, Rachel mentioned that briefly, and I did not. I didn't understand that. Um, I thought I thought we had the Putney debates. All right. So if if the question of where you know Fairfax and Cromwell and the and the Protestant grandees stand with the Levellers is 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 complicated, I'm curious about when Stanley and the Diggers. So it sounds like when Stanley was arrested before the Diggers even. <laughs> Uh, before the diggers even get going, I've also read that possibly the opposition to them really came locally, and the 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 people at the top actually perhaps would have tolerated them. But I I'm I'm not sure where that stands either. Okay, so again, very good summary. So not when Stanley Everard is arrested before the diggers get going. Everard, sorry. Good. Yeah, everyone is arrested. When Stanley's just fined for take for digging up Pete, he's not the one he's who plans fined. to kill the king. Yeah, <laughs> he's fine. He's fine for digging up for fuel, but it's not the same. Everard is arrested for wanting to kill the king, which is a quite a different order of magnitude. But in answer to your question, um, the locals send the initial report saying we've got some local, we've got some people digging up a hill. What do we do? What they're most afraid of 
is whether this is going to cause a riot. It's not that they're digging up the hill and they're planting crops. They're not bothered about that. They're, the question is, there's been lots of royalist resistance. We've seen it in the civil, Second Civil War just a few months before. Is this the royalists using this as cover? Are they just trying to... Is, there, is Surrey going to be another flashpoint of royalist rebellion? So it goes to the authorities and they say, well, let's send some soldiers over to, to investigate. Uh, Captain John Gladman, and he basically he goes and has a look and says, look, there are a bunch of poor, starving people. They're of no harm to anybody, just a little bit eccentric. Leave them alone. <laughs> then Fairfax calls Everard and Winstanley before him a couple of weeks later to Whitehall. And they um, he questions them, and this is this makes a major press sensation. And they refuse to take off their hat to him, and taking off your hat is a sign of deference to your social superiors, and anticipates something that the Quakers would become famous for. And in fact, when Stanley will die a Quaker, which is something that is worth mentioning. Uh, and it's at this point that Winstanley and Everard relate this idea about tyranny and oppression and the Norman conquest and the children of Israel out of Egypt. But essentially, Fairfax thinks the same as Gladman. They're just a bunch of harmless eccentrics, perhaps a little bit crazy, but they're of no real problems or trouble. And indeed, when his army marches nearby, I'm trying to find the exact date for you. Uh, June, yeah, June 1649. Sorry, no, the end of May. It was only a few days out. I thought it was beginning of June. End of May. He visits and he just says they're just working hard. They seem perfectly normal. Leave them alone. As you say, the opposition is the locals, not the authorities. It's, uh, it's, nim it's nimbyism. Uh, yeah. In a sense, so firstly, the clergy are very strongly opposed to the diggers because they have a very strong anti-clerical message. And they don't right. worship at the local right. parish church. And they have these rather radical religious ideas that I've outlined. So they're opposed. Some of the local landowners are opposed because could you imagine their tenants getting ideas that perhaps they don't need to pay rent and that they can share all their crops it's probably not going to go down too well and then you've got the locals themselves who as i said say we have the right to the common land in this parish you're not from here you don't deserve it and john gurney did a very good piece of work the diggers it's forgotten that the diggers have two separate the surrey diggers i should say because there are other diggers elsewhere have two separate communities. One in George's Hill in the parish of Walton-upon-Thames that lasts for about 21 weeks, and one in neighbouring Cobham that lasts for about 34. So the George's Hill one goes from April to roughly August, and the Cobham one is from August or, or July, and then the Cobham one is August 49 to April 50. So the, cop, the second community lasts a bit longer. It's mostly the same people, except Everard's gone off and does disruptive things elsewhere. 
So there, there is a lot of that. And it's also worth bearing in mind that there are other digger communities elsewhere in, this, in some other counties, particularly uh, if your listeners are aware of English geography, Buckinghamshire and Northamptonshire. So north of London, but not north, what we might now call the Midlands or beyond London. South Midlands. And if I understand correctly, there were communities of, of diggers, low, lowercase d diggers, presumably everywhere, because everyone was starving. I mean, I assume the waste was being dug up everywhere. What What's strange about these people is the ideology, not the yeah. practice yeah. of subsistence farming. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, I mean that, that's what makes it different. Can I say a word about the name? Because that's been because that's been in debate yes. as well. Yes, go ahead. So, what do we call these people? Well, they called themselves the diggers. In your podcast with Rachel, no doubt Rachel will explain that most terms that are used are hostile terms. That the leveler is not a term that they would have chosen for themselves. It's meant to destroy their legitimacy. Some of the press call the diggers new levelers. They make a deliberate association of the diggers as a new form of levelers. And in fact, some of the leveler propagandists write immediately and say, no, these people have got nothing to do with us. We don't want anything to do with them. These are, we're moderates, they're radical essentially. Now, in the literature, you'll see that the diggers are sometimes called the true levelers. That's based on one pamphlet of their entire writings, which is called the True Leveler Standard Advanced. And the problem is, is that the pamphlet misses out the apostrophe S because the printer never used the apostrophe S. This is my reading of it and John Gurney's reading. We had a long discussion about it. So it should really read the true leveler apostrophe S standard advanced rather than the true levelers standard advanced. So they are not the true levelers in the plural. They are advancing the standard of the true leveler. And the true leveler uh, is Jesus. Jesus. I got that one. People level the, level the mountains. So they are diggers. That's the word that they use to describe themselves. Okay. And then I'll tell you, I don't know if you knew this, but we have some of the, uh, an, some anarchist scholars have unearthed that the, uh, the levelers, not the diggers, were also described as Switzerland anarchists. And that seems to be the first time that word anarchist was, was ever used. I didn't know that. When when are they called Switzerland anarchists? Do you know this? Um, I'll I'll send you the link. It's a, a narrative of modest intelligence. It's it's a it's a pamphlet that's in the George Thomason collection. Okay. Uh, I think it's sixteen forty nine. It's a broadside against the uh, agreement agreement of the people, um, mm -hmm. and it describes the levelers as Switzerland anarchists. And that, that, as near as we can tell, that, that that is the first time the word anarchist is ever used. But it's not at the diggers, who were, I think, actually anarchists. It's at the levelers, who, the levelers. who, who weren't really. Um, 
is it time to talk about because we're running out of time sex and the ranters because that seems no. to be uh as as we're about to when, set up there, the ranters of the episode. oh they will they, 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 they will get the ranters will get their own episode with nigel smith but um when stanley very much objects to the ranters and takes pains to claim that they're what they've got going on is is wrong and it's because of sex that he objects to the ranters. So I thought you could draw that distinction and that might be a nice way to move towards the end and also set up the, the next episode. Of course. So ranters is another term of hostility to rant or declaim loudly. And I'm just checking. Win Stanley is the first person to talk at any great length about the ranters. <laughs> and he does this in a pamphlet dated 20th of February, 1650, with a postscript a couple of weeks later in March. And he calls it, it's not the sex that he objects to. It's the sex oh, outside marriage. Ah, uh, yes, of course. Yes, yeah, the sex outside marriage, <laughs> which leads to bastardy. And it's the community. So, but there's an essential point. The diggers, if we get away from the anachronism, believe in community of goods. All goods could be in common. The ranters believe in community of goods and community of women. That all goods are in common and all women are in common and all men are in common to all women. So that's the, that's the fundamental split point. And it's one of the things that split the radical Anabaptists. You talked about the Switzerland anarchists. The Anabaptists of Munster in Westphalia wanted to reintroduce polygamy on the basis of scriptural precedent of the patriarchs Abraham and Co. To have not, all, not only all things in common, but all women in common. And that is what the ranters are reviving. So they have a great deal in common. Except the ranters want everything shared. And when Stanley uses that dividing line to separate the diggers from the ranters, not only that, one of the ranter leaders, Lawrence Clarkson, or future ranter leaders, actually joins the community for a while and listens to Win Stanley. And Win Stanley has an illusion in which he's clearly criticizing one of Clarkson's ideas, which is that there is no sin. Sin and transgression is finished, which is what Abieza Cop says. Yeah, and that obviously Win Stanley has a very a much more, you know, moralistic black and white view. Like he doesn't think sin sin is finished as long as the as long as the power of the law and the prisons are still in the world. I must admit, I'm I'm more sympathetic to Win to Win Stanley there. Um so uh, so good. So we did that connection. And now I think all that's left probably is to say, say goodbye to the the diggers. I guess we didn't quite cover how the um, how the settlement was broken up. And I guess once once we do that, you can tell us what you take to be their their significance. And then you're and then you have done your job. OK, so. The diggers settlement is broken up. I mean, the, I, one quick little thing. If I'm allowed to plug, I have a blog, and yes. 
I've got some little things on there. And I did a little thing. The Diggers had a song. <laughs> and those, um, and I did, I've done a little piece that's just come out now called On the Diggers Song. And in I've been trying to date that song. And I'm trying to work out whether it was written just before or just after the community was broken up in April 1650. It's broken up about the time of Easter in 1650. And... Prior to that, the diggers are savagely assaulted in a number of ways. They have their houses burnt down. One of their horses is maimed. Some of their other animals are stolen. They're imprisoned. They're proceeded against both physically and legally. A woman is savagely kicked and miscarries. Old people having to sleep out in the cold. So they're, they're enduring real hardship. And the final attack is a lot of hired laborers stoked up by the local some of the local clergy and some of the local landowners and they they destroy all the furniture they kick them out the houses and they say if you come back we'll kill you and then they ring the church bells in celebration so ends the diggers now the ranter who infiltrated the digger community lawrence clarkson says that winstanley makes a shameful betrayal because after there is an epilogue firstly he takes up residents with a female prophetess and they argue about who has the better prophetic authority and he works in her farm for a while but then he he becomes a local office holder mm. he he marries again late in life he does okay but he does become a quaker he attends quaker meetings and he does become a quaker something that the marxist historians wanted to deny because they the marxist historians wanted to argue that religion wasn't very important for him and then it was just a cloak to mask radical ideas and then he moves to a more secular mode whereas becoming a quaker sort of gets rid of all of that so the way around it is now to say well the quaker was already radical too and they too use religion but that's the language of the day for the radicalism they are then more or less completely and utterly forgotten about. I mean, when Stanley lives for a long time, he dies in the 1670s, but he's left digging far behind. There's, except for this attendance of the Quaker meeting and some hints of Quakerism, there's, there's nothing to suggest any radicalism. Some of the diggers do become Quakers, a, a noticeably significant amount. Everard is last seen in prison, manacled and never heard from again. Um, the memory of them just completely and utterly disappears. The only traces that I found afterwards is through the ownership of Winstanley's books. There are people who, who buy it and then pass it along and then copy it. And what I found in the 18th century is that nobody is interested in the diggers as diggers. What they are interested in is Winstanley as a theologian and particularly his mm. ideas about universal salvation and that he's most remembered as a, a pioneer in ideas about universal salvation. Then there's a gradual reprinting by anti-Trinitarians, uh, anti Unitarians of various pieces of work. And this rediscovery of the diggers in the 1890s by Edward Bernstein and others, and the positioning of the diggers. Everybody appropriates the diggers in different ways. So... Some see him as the precursor of single land tax, some as a Tolstoy figure, some, we haven't really talked about this, as a pacifist, because the diggers follow one of the radical Anabaptist ideas of turning the other cheek, 
non pacifism is another anachronism of non-violence and then he gets constructed obviously as a proto-marxist or proto-communist and most recently though i i disagree with this but some people probably hope they're not i'm not annoying them people think he's like england's not only first communist but his the first green <laughs> he's a pioneer <laughs> ecologist he has very interesting things to say about the land. Uh, and I've written at length about where that comes from and in what does or doesn't. So he is without doubt one of the great prose writers of 17th century England. And that's a common opinion now. He's also one of the great thinkers of 17th century England. And many people would agree that he has enormous insight into understanding how power was structured in the mid 17th century. And he had a vision of what to replace it with a completely impracticable vision, impracticable vision, let's face it, but a vision nonetheless. And so I think that is his legacy. And it's one that was recognized early in the 20th century, more than 100 years ago in Moscow with the Alexander Garden Novelist. And there he is on the list after Marx and Engels and next to Thomas More, another creator of a utopia. Another, Gerard Winstanley, another creator of a utopia. What a, what a great way to put it. All right, Ariel, I think, I, I, I think we've done it unless there's anything else you need to add. No, just to thank you once again, Graham, for the opportunity to share my passion about Winstanley and the Diggers and to hope that people listening to this will be encouraged to read some Winstanley and read about Winstanley. Yeah, if there's if there's one thing I'm sorry that we we didn't do was put and you know this was I didn't prep this enough to put more of Winstanley's words in here, but I just listeners, he he is a thrill to read. And if you have been following along with me and reading people like William Morris, Tolstoy, Kropotkin, he sounds a lot like them. And, but I would say beyond any of them, he has a, a you know, a theological flair that is just, is just thrilling. It is a prophetic voice. Absolutely. Uh, you can edit this bit out, but maybe you could do some readings just to I I have I have done that in the past. Like when I talked about Kropotkin, I read some Kropotkin. So maybe you know if I can find some time, I might read. I might read something. Just a couple of paragraphs, um, just so people get the get yeah. a flavor of it. I need to say, Ariel, thank you so much because I contacted you just to talk about Winstanley. This was the only episode we were initially doing, and then uh, we had a conversation, and and next thing. Next thing I knew, I was planning six, seven, maybe more episodes, and it's been an absolute thrill to do this. Thank you for your help, for helping me get in touch with everyone and making this this little series, which I, I hope people will find very interesting possible. Thank you. Thank you, Graham. It's, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Just do get in touch if you want even more obscure groups than the diggers, and you, and you haven't got anybody in mind. <laughs> Oh, I think I think I'm going to be good on the uh, 17th century uh, English radicals for a little while, but I'm sure you'll hear from me at some point. Thank you, Ariel. Okay, thank you, Graham.